Thank you. That particular song, Light of the World, may be one that is newer to you. It's, I suppose, in the, in the bigger scheme of things, it is a newer song, but it's also one that uh, we have only just been learning. And in fact, next Sunday morning, it's a part of the program that, that our choir will be presenting. And so we sang it today just as a, a way to introduce that song. But even as I say that, I really want to encourage you to make it a priority. Be with us in worship next Sunday morning on December 17th. Now, I think you should be here every Sunday when we gather, okay? I mean, all my cards on the table, I think that Uh, I think that's what you ought to do. I think this is the place to be on Sunday mornings at 1030. But next Sunday, especially as we gather for a time of worship, we're going to be led in worship by our choir. And and there'll be, I I think at this point, we have more than 60 voices singing in our choir with us next Sunday. We're really excited for that. And you'll want to be here. It will be a very special morning indeed. Well, this morning is special in its own right as well. And as we prepare to study the scripture together, I want to pause first to dismiss our adults and our kids upstairs for kids crew. This is going to be a time for kids who are fourth grade and younger. They're going to make their way upstairs and even as they're headed upstairs, let me highlight something that involves them that will be happening tonight because tonight at six o'clock in this room, they have a, a program that they have been working on and I'll just let you know that I was here Friday night when they did their rehearsal, and it is fantastic. You are going to have so much fun with their program. We hope that you will come tonight to, to worship with and enjoy the fruit of the labor of these kids. They've been working on this for weeks now, and it's going to be fantastic tonight. You will not want to miss that. We'll have a lot of fun together, but then also it's a really special way for them to lead us to Jesus to celebrate who Christ is and what it is that he has done for us. And so you'll need to be here tonight to uh, be a part of that and and just cheer on our children for the work that they've done. Philippians chapter 2 is going to be our text this morning. Philippians chapter 2. We are reading through the Bible together, and each week we are studying a passage from that week's reading. This week we've read through many of Paul's letters to the different churches in what would today be Turkey, the modern-day country of Turkey, or Asia Minor. Uh, The church at Philippi is one of those. And there's a particular text in Philippians chapter 2 this morning that I want us to study together that I think is one of the, the richest passages in all of the New Testament. So some years ago when I was a a senior in high school. That's going back a few years now. Uh, that, that was way back in the, in the 90s, in the other millennia. Uh, that, that was, uh, I was in high school and my youth pastor led a, a group of students through a study that was called The Mind of Christ. It was the name of the study. It had been written by a, a man named T.W. Hunt who had been uh, co-written or at least, I guess, supporting work by Claude King. Many of you know Claude King because of his work also with Henry Blackaby in uh, the Experiencing God Bible Study, so that may be a name that's familiar. And so we did this Bible study together, the, going through this, this study, The Mind of Christ. And that was the first time that I remember discovering this passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2. Now, it's obviously been there a lot longer than that. Uh, Paul wrote, wrote this a long time ago. But as a young man, as a 17, 18, whatever I was, year old man, 
I remember discovering this passage and thinking on it, meditating on it, studying it, and really wrestling with what it meant to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he says. And I want us to consider that together this morning, what it would mean for us to embrace or to, to, to live with this mind of Christ that this passage points us to from Philippians chapter 2. And so I want us to read together. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses, and then we're going to ask this basic question. What does it mean for us to have the mind of Christ? And when we have that, well, then how ought we to live in light of that? Okay, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Many scholars believe that this particular passage of Scripture contains some language that was a part of a hymn that the early church would use. And the, the reason for that is because if you were to read a significant part of this in the original language, it's written in such a way that there is a meter or a flow, a, a rhythm, if you will, to the words that seems very, very uh, song-like or very, very lyrical in a sense. And so we don't know that for sure. It's not like we have the early church's hymn book that we can pull out and we can, you know, reference, oh, this is hymn 35 from the, you know, that's not the way that they did things. It's not the way that it worked. And yet, when they would have gathered together for worship, they would have, they would have sung together or recited together bits of truth that were meant to point them to the understanding. In, in many ways, it might be, it might be something like a responsive reading. If you've ever participated, when we've done a responsive reading, there's sort of a, a call and answer rhythm to that where one person will read and then the, the audience will read together in unison sort of a response. Or even on occasion, we just read Scripture together. We will, we will stand together and we will read passages of Scripture together or recite certain truths together. Well, if you've ever participated in something like that, that may be similar to what the early church would have done in order to learn this truth, in order to learn the truth that was being passed down from the teaching of the apostles for them to embrace and, and live by. They didn't have 
a, a Bible in the form that we do. They didn't, have, they didn't have a printing press. They didn't have the ability to mass produce copies the way that whatever scriptures that they might have, be it the, the whole of the Old Testament scripture, which would have actually been very rare uh, for, for one person to have. In fact, virtually no individual had a copy of the Old uh, the entire Old Testament, what we would consider the Old Testament, but the synagogue, the local Jewish synagogue, might have, might have a, a complete copy of the Old Testament, or it's more likely would have certain parts of the Old Testament scripture that they would use during corporate worship gatherings. And so when the church would gather, particularly the New Testament church, who, who had the habit not just of gathering in the synagogue, but in gathering in homes on the on the, the first day of the week, not on the Jewish Sabbath, and, and celebrating together and preaching and encouraging one another, they would have used something like what we read here in Philippians chapter 2 as a, a text of sorts, as a, a creed, I'll use that word, a creed sort of that they would have recited to encourage one another. And you can see why. Because the language itself of what we read here in Philippians chapter 2 points us to Jesus as our example. It points us to follow the example set for us by Christ, who did not consider himself too great, too high, to humble himself and serve the the needs of others. And ultimately, that means us. And he served our greatest need by taking on the form of a servant, by being obedient to the will of the Father, as this passage teaches us. It's pointing us to live with this mind of Christ. And maybe you might think of the word mind as a mindset of Christ. The mind of Christ, as it were. The mindset of Christ. The, the attitude of Christ. To embrace the ethos of Jesus. Those are all, I think, appropriate ways to understand what this means for us. That we would live with this mind, which is ours in Christ Jesus. So because of our faith in Jesus, we can live this example. And that's what I want us to see together this morning. What does it look like if we were to live this example? If we were to live with the mind of Christ? Well, there are three things. You have no doubt probably looked to your notes and you see I've got three points here that I want us to see together. Three distinct ways that I think this passage is pointing us to live with the mind of Christ. And so the first is this, that the mind of Christ produces unity. The mind of Christ produces unity among us. Now in the very first verse, the very opening words, we read, so if, so if there is any encouragement in Christ. That, the language there, so if, is a bit tricky in the Greek in the way that you would interpret this, in the way that you would, I'll say, translate this. There are so many different words that could be used here because of the grammatical structure. And so if is entirely appropriate, but it carries this weight of since, not just not just so, when we read so if, we think conditional, right? We're, we're taught that the word if is a conditional word. If, then, conditional types of statements. Well, this isn't saying that these things are conditional, but I think it's, it's maybe more clear to understand them as provisional rather than conditional. What I mean by that is that we could say so if, we could say since or because 
since there is encouragement in Christ and comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, because we have encouragement in Christ, because we have comfort from love, because we are participants. You see what I'm saying? It's provisional, not just conditional. It's because these things are true. In light of the fact that these things are true, we can live with unity. Well, that unity itself is a product of the mind of Christ in us. When we live according to the example of Jesus, the example that he has set, when we embrace this mind, this mindset that is ours in Christ, we should have unity. In fact, just look at, look at the, the unity, the descriptors here, the way that it describes this Christian unity that we live with rests on a foundation of encouragement in Christ. When I think of the encouragement that we have in Christ, I think of the fact that Jesus gave everything for us to ransom us from our sin. The fact that Jesus offered his life as a sacrifice. That Jesus himself, he didn't send someone else to do it for him. Jesus became the sacrifice for us. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will, frankly. If you don't find encouragement from the fact that God himself gave his life for you, then I don't know what will. In fact, the old saying, uh, the way that my pastor would say when I was a boy, he would say, if that doesn't light your fire, then your wood's wet. Uh, right? I mean, that ought to bring some encouragement to you. That Jesus gave himself for you. Not only that, there's comfort from love and participation in the Spirit. We have Jesus, we have His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is a way that we know the love of God and we participate in all of the, all of the, the things that are ours in Christ, all of the benefits of knowing Him that are made available to us as heirs, co-heirs together with Christ. We find encouragement in this love, we find encouragement in, this, in, this, in this participation in the Spirit, but it goes even further. Any affection and sympathy. There's lots of affection and sympathy to go around. There's lots of ways that we, that we have love for and sympathize with and serve and, and, and build up one another. And all of these things are pointing to the unity that exists within a body. In fact, I'll, I'll take it so far as I, I want to say that you can't do these things alone, really. Not the way that they're designed. That if we are truly to have encouragement in Christ, comfort and love and participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, that these things happen not just one-on-one -on -one individually, but in the context of the body of Christ, the church, that he has, that he has called us all to be a part of. And so because we have these things... In light of the fact that these things are true, we are to have unity. Now, if we're going to talk about unity, I think it's important that we understand what unity is and what unity isn't. Unity does not mean that we always have to agree. Unity does not mean that no one is entitled to their own opinion. Unity does not mean that there is uniformity. We all need to look the same and act the same and do all the same things. That's not that's not real unity. That's, that's, that's just a front, right? Unity is when we choose to come together in spite of all of our differences. Unity is when we 
purposefully and willingly lay aside our rights and our wishes and our wants in order to put others in front of us. Isn't that when we really begin to live out verse 4 here? It tells us that we should look not only to our interests, but also the interest of others. You can't look out for the interests of others if you're not ever around other people. And if you're not setting aside your own wants, your own rights, your own ideas and desires in order to elevate, in order to spotlight or serve someone else. You see, real unity comes not by some kind of uh, mass group think. Real unity comes as we serve one another, which really just plays beautifully into the next point that, that Paul is writing here. So the mind of Christ produces unity. Secondly, I think we see that the mind of Christ prompts service. That in order for us to be united, I, I should say this, the mind of Christ prompts humility. Humility, that's my word there. But then humility expresses itself in service. That when, in, order for us to, in order for us to live with this unity, we have to humble ourselves. We have to serve others. And the whole point of what Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 are telling us is that we are to serve others according to the example set by Jesus. That this mind that we are to embrace, this mind which is ours in Christ, is a mind that is focused on serving the needs of others. That is focused on putting other people first. You can't put others first. You can't live out Philippians chapter 2 verse 4, verse 5, and the following verses. You can't follow the example of Jesus unless you are willing to humble yourself. Jesus himself was humbled in order that he might set the example for us. Jesus humbled himself, and he took on the form of a servant. He became one of us. The God of creation, the God of glory, the maker of all things, the Gospels teach us, humbled himself to become one of us. In fact, I love the way that John writes it in the Gospel of John, in, in particularly in verse 14 of John chapter 1. He tells us that he, that he became one of us. He emptied himself. And he took on human flesh in order that he might serve us and serve our needs. What a beautiful, what a rich, what a high, lofty example it is that we would lower ourselves in humility and serve others. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Mark writes this, that the Son of Man, and he's just really, he's just quoting what Jesus was teaching. The Son of Man didn't come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus taught his disciples that I have come in order to serve you, in order to give my life for you. John chapter 14, again in John chapter 15, we learn that we are to follow the example of Jesus by laying down our lives for our friends, laying down our, again and again, the New Testament points us to the example of humility that, that ultimately leads to service. We, we live out the example of Jesus. We, we demonstrate real humility when we serve 
others. Uh, years ago, I was involved with the Camp Super Summer. In summers, we send a lot of our students to this leadership camp that's known as Super Summer. Super Summer, Oklahoma. It meets on the campus of Oklahoma Baptist University. And they don't do this anymore, but years ago at Super Summer, they used to give out an award in the, the various schools that was called the, the I'm Third Award. And, and so the I'm Third Award basically said that Jesus is first, others are second, and I'm third. And it was hilarious to watch people all week long who would go out of their way, who were working so hard to be so humble in order that at the end of the week they might win the award for humility, right? I mean, it's kind of an oxymoron that if you've got to work that hard to make sure that are you really being humble, right? This is the kind of humility that Jesus demonstrates for us is not a self-exalting kind of humility. Now, ultimately, Jesus' humility does lead to his exaltation. And we'll talk more about that with our third point in just a minute. But it's not, it's not pointing us to follow this example, to humble ourselves so that we might be lifted up. To humble ourselves, to serve others, in order that we, are, we do such a good job that everybody else would say, oh, she's such a great servant. Oh, he's, such, he's so humble, right? Instead, the goal is that by bringing ourselves low, by humbling ourselves, that Jesus would be exalted, that he would be lifted up, that his example would be what others would see in us. Not an exaltation of, of self, but rather the, the exaltation of Christ. In, in these verses, I think Paul outlines this example of Jesus. There's, uh, there's like four things that I see here, and like a good preacher, I've alliterated all of these, right? That Jesus' example is all about sacrifice, that he, that he gave, he gave of himself. And so we read that he didn't count others more significant, but he put others first. He served the needs. He he gave, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Jesus sacrificed. His sacrifice also was, was demonstrated in service. So the, the second part of Jesus' example here we see in his service. And he served our needs. That he, he willingly, willingly endured the cross. He willingly endured suffering, punishment. He willingly took these things in order that he might meet our greatest need. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, humbled himself, we go on to read, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus' surrender. And he was willing to surrender his life as payment for our sin. What more could he give? He gave us everything by offering his life as payment for our sin. He surrendered his very life. And, and then from that, we find salvation. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and ev under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus is exalted because of his example of humility, his sacrifice, his service, his surrender 
bringing salvation to us. Jesus gave everything so that in him we might have everything. As we look to Jesus for our salvation. Finally, in this passage, we see that the mind of Christ promotes God's glory. So the mind of Christ produces unity. The mind of Christ prompts humility. And finally, the mind of Christ promotes God's glory, ultimately. We could say it this way, that God gets glory when we live with the mind of Christ. God gets glory when we put others first, when we humble ourselves, when we live with unity as the people of God, when we look to Jesus for salvation, all the things that this text is pointing us to. When we live this way, God gets glory. In fact, if this were any of us, it would be, it would be uh, narcissistic, wouldn't it? It would be totally selfish for any of us to expect somehow exaltation because of our, our sacrifice, because of our, our humility, and yet because of who Jesus truly is. Because of his worth, because of, because of his glory ultimately, the only right response to Jesus' humility would be his exaltation, his worship. And so the Lord receives worship. He gets glory when we lift up Jesus, when we exalt Jesus, when we worship him. When we humble ourselves and we bring ourselves low and confess our need for him, in all of these ways, Jesus is exalted among us. And God receives glory through the exaltation of Jesus. Have you ever asked the question, or, or maybe you've wondered or, or you've heard someone else ask the question, why did God choose this plan? Why did God choose to send Jesus why did, why did God do it? Why this way? Of all the things God could have done to, to save us from our sin, why this plan? Have you ever wondered that or you've heard someone else pose that question? Well, the, the answer, I suppose, can be rather complex in some ways. But the heart of the answer really is so simple. It's because God in His goodness knew that this was the plan that would bring him the most glory. That by choosing to offer himself as the payment, as the sacrifice, as the one who would surrender his life for us, he receives the most glory. Again, if that were you or me, we would think, well, but isn't that ultimately selfish? And you know what? If it were you or me, it would be really selfish. Because the truth is, you're not deserving of that glory. You can't sustain the weight of that glory. And yet, God can. He is deserving of that glory. He will sustain the weight of that glory because He is, in all things, He is preeminent. He is first. By the way, there is a really excellent book. If you want to wrestle with this in, 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 uh, in depth, 
I would point you to C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. It's a really excellent read that will help you to understand some of this. He even deals with a lot of it in his book, Mere Christianity, as well. So if you're just looking for a resource, because like I said, that can be, it can be pretty deep. But the heart of the matter is this. God gets the most glory when we turn to Jesus for salvation. And he's worthy of that glory. He's worthy of that exaltation. He's worthy of our lives that we would live with the mind of Christ, exalting Jesus as Lord and bringing glory to God the Father. And so as you and I live in the mind of Christ, live with this mind of Christ, it, it will produce unity among us. It will prompt us to serve, to put others first, because it, it prompts humility in our hearts. And ultimately, it will promote God's glory, his worth, that he is exalted as we bring ourselves low. I wonder today, are you living with the mind of Christ? Maybe you're hearing all of this, and, and, and perhaps today for the first time, you're coming to the place where you recognize your own need to put Jesus first in your heart and your life. By calling on him as Lord and Savior, by confessing him, turning from your sin and turning to Jesus as Savior. If that's you, then in just a moment, we're going to have a time of response, a time of invitation. We would invite you to come. As I'll be standing here, Brad will be standing here at the front. We would love to pray with you and just counsel you through the decision to surrender your life to Jesus today. If you're ready to trust him, then we want to encourage you that you would make that decision today. So even as we begin to sing this song, you can just step out into the aisle, make your way forward, and come to the front. Let us pray with you. Let us counsel you through a decision to surrender Christ. Maybe you've taken that step, but this morning you've been, you've been encouraged or, or you've been perhaps convicted, it might even be a more appropriate word, that you need to live with the mind of Christ. That you need to embrace this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. That you would seek to live with unity, with humility, making much of God's glory. If that's true today, then I want to encourage you that you would follow the example of Jesus who was obedient. Even at the point of great cost, Jesus was obedient. Can I encourage you that you would respond to him in obedience today as you put him first and live according to his example. And so as we prepare for a time of response to this truth, I want to encourage you to join with me in a moment of prayer. And after we pray, as we stand and begin singing this song, if God's stirring your heart and you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus today, or even just perhaps you'd like for us to pray with you in some way, then even as we sing, we would encourage you to step out and come. Would you pray with me now? Lord, we are so grateful that you served our greatest need by offering your life for us on the cross. We recognize that, that you, Jesus, are deserving of all praise, all honor, all glory. And so our desire this morning is to glorify you, to exalt you by putting you first in our hearts and our lives, by living for you and following your example as we embrace this mind which is ours 
in Christ Jesus. Lord, produce unity, prompt humility, promote your glory among us as we embrace the mind of Christ. All this we pray in your name.